So I have four nieces and nephews, and I was talking to my sister about IXL. And IXL Learning is this fun online program for kids, and it covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. My sister and my nephew love it. The way it works is it's powered by AI, so IXL gives the right help to each kid. And IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Maybe you've been looking into private tutoring, but it's out of the budget, or this is a big school year for your kiddo. So make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And all of these listeners can get an exclusive. 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash ologies. So visit IXL.com slash ologies to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures, I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Oh, fun fact about this episode. It's all about sea urchins. But at the very end, we put a little bonus episode for you. And it's all about electric vehicles. I've long had a passion for them. I also like to get away from driving fossil fuels. I have an electric vehicle. So I got a chance to talk with an up-and-coming science communicator. He has a podcast called Star Talk. And we discuss electric vehicles and the possibilities around them. So that's at the very end of the episode. But on to sea urchins. Hi, it's your best man's brother who makes really good kebabs, Allie Ward. Let's dive into the sandy sea bottom, shall we? Let's gather some facts about water hedgehogs. This ology is echinoderms, specifically sea urchins and sand dollars. This is a wild one. Echinos in Greek means hedgehog. Urchin, Latin for hedgehog, water hedgehogs. So I got into physically the California Academy of Sciences for this one. That's right. It's an in-person interview. Hi, Rich. Hello, Rich. Welcome to Sea Urchin Central. Oh, I'm so You've had quite a morning. I had just flown up an hour before to San Francisco. I raced to the academy, and I was balancing a cafeteria coffee and my tiny old Mervyn's leather purse with all my sound equipment. I had just gotten a negative PCR Things were good. We had some face-to-face communication with one of the world's experts in this field. I hope you're ready to talk sea urchins. Uh, oh, I'm never ready to talk sea. I hate those things. <laughs> who we will meet in a sec, but first, thank you to everyone at patreon.com slash ologies for supporting the show and everyone who has ever left a review for the show, which keeps it up in the charts. I've read every single one you've ever left, including one left this week from Lil Philly, who wrote, this podcast is like the best info dump friend you could ask for. And they write, I love you so much that I can even forgive you for throwing shade on Chikshuka. Lil Philly, it's mutual. And Chikshuka would be fine without the tomatoes. Other than that, Chikshuka, you're trash. Okay, so this guest, this echinologist, he has been studying these sea creatures for decades and is now the curator of echinoderms at the California Academy of Sciences Department of Invertebrate Zoology and Geology. And his brain holds more knowledge about how these creatures evolved and how they are related to each other than perhaps anyone else out there. And these critters live on sandy seafloors and rocks from places like Nova Scotia, all the way to Antarctica, and everywhere in between. And he has published papers on populations from Sri Lanka, the Philippines, Morocco, Florida, and more. And most people, if you ask them, what do you think of a sea urchin? They say, I don't think about sea urchins. Well, get ready for that to change. You're about to drive down the freeway just thinking about their butts and hats and aerodynamics, their disembodied teeth, 
designer sand grains, philosopher's lanterns, the best sushi you have ever had, what it's like for your whole damn body to be an eye. So please enjoy these waves of knowledge crashing all around you with human delight, curator, researcher, explorer, evolutionary enthusiast, and new friend, econologist Dr. Rich Moy. Yeah, it's uh, Rich Moy. That's my published name. I'm Richard John, mm-hmm. uh, and it's and it's he him. Cool. I work on a wide variety of of echinoderms, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the sea urchins are one little corner thereof. How would you say? I mean, I might as well. We might as well just start. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Um, well, echinoid. 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 The formal name for the group is Echinoidea. Okay. Oidea, the oidea ending just is a special connotation that it's a larger group within an even larger group. And that even larger group is is a phylum. Mm-hmm. And in this case, we're talking about the phylum Echinodermata. Mm-hmm. And the Echinodermata is a group that includes all those familiar sort of marine iconic things like starfish, mm-hmm. uh, sea lilies. If you've ever heard of sea lilies, they're actually not plants. They're animals that look a little bit like a starfish turned upside down on a stalk moored to the sea bottom. I've never seen or heard of it. Sea cucumbers. Mm -hmm. uh, You've probably heard of those. Heard of them. Yeah. Sometimes they're eaten. Sometimes they're they're fished for for food. Their poop Um, is mesmerizing. Their poop is mesmerizing. (laughs) Absolutely. Magic poop, man. A sea cucumber, side note, is so polite. It eats buckets of sand and it cleans all the debris out of it. And then at the other end, just imagine a tube of toothpaste, but with sand, just on a continuous loop. It is mesmerizing. And yes, the phylum Echinodermata contains a lot of different animals, but this episode will be zooming in to both the regular, symmetrical, and the irregular ones, because those two are his favorites. Would this be echinoidology if we're talking just urchins? Actually... It's a kind of a made-up term. Okay. But I call myself an echinologist. Uh, perfect. That's not a made-up term. You're allowed to make it up. I'm you're allowed one of, to make it up. Yes, you're one of the most <laughs> yeah, foremost is, researchers of this. All three of us call ourselves that. No, actually, <laughs> <laughs> there's actually quite a lot of interest in, in sea urchins worldwide, and there are experts in as far-flung places as Austria, mm-hmm. lots of them in Russia uh, at the moment. That's a difficult topic, but um, sure. I, I have several colleagues there um, with whom I'm missing direct contact at the moment. Rich also has colleagues at Scripps and is working via a grant to piece together the evolution and family tree of sea urchins and then cross-check it with fossils. One of the great things about sea urchins, and I'll tell you a bit more about what those actually are in a moment, um, is that they fossilize really well ah. because they have this hard structure, a skeleton. It's actually a true skeleton, so it gets a special name. It's called a test. This is a test. Okay. And as I tell my students, don't let me catch you calling it a shell. 
<laughs> if it's a sh- if you if I hear you calling it a shell, I'm going to have to hunt you down. Um, but uh, it's actually an internal skeleton. A shell is external. It's secreted by snails and clams and things like that as an external protection. Mm-hmm. But the test of sea urchins is actually like your skull in a way. There are internal organs inside that. And then the whole thing is covered with skin and there are muscles to operate the spines and all of the other good things that make a sea urchin work in its environment. So it really is a true skeleton. Because it's not the last thing facing the environment? That's correct. There's actually an interface of skin, epithelium we call it, special name, but it's a it's a skin layer between that test, uh, the skeleton, mm-hmm. and the environment itself, ah. which makes sea urchins um, kind of special in many ways because the form of that test tells us a lot about how they live, where they live, because so much of that is reflected in the skeletal structure, in the shapes of the things that sea urchins adorn themselves with, Mm -hmm. um, that you can actually see a sea urchin in the fossil record and know almost immediately by comparison with what they're doing today, what that animal was doing in its environment 10, tens, dozens, hundreds of years, millions of years ago. Uh, So that makes them an ideal laboratory for the study of major changes in evolution, major evolutionary innovations. I like to say that I study innovation in nature. Evolutionary novelty is, is my shtick. <laughs> well, what about your history, though? How did you, how, if you're talking your evolution, doesn't quite, you know, go back as long as the sea urchins, but how did you wind up studying these spiky, sand dollary, round, flat, uh, spiky creatures? Well, the story goes back a long way. Uh-huh. Um, I'm one of those nerdy kids that tripped out on all kinds of ancient books mm-hmm. and books that my relatives would send to me because they knew of my interests. And so one of my favorite books was a, a book by Rachel Carson, The Sea Around Us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually had an abridged version, and I never tired of looking at the pictures in there. So I knew, I guess, maybe when I was about eight or nine years old that I wanted to be a marine biologist. Wow, that's so young. That's so convenient for you and your parents and teachers. <laughs> yeah, it was it was convenient for me especially. But but yeah, I think I think people saw, oh yeah, marine biologist probably stay out of trouble. Yeah. Um, but um, the truth is that. Marine biology for me in the landlocked city of Toronto was a bit of a challenge. I'm so sure. So I lived through a lot of that by by reading all of these books and watching the great Cousteau shows and things like that. It is not very glamorous, but it is floating and it is alive. So I'm one of these guys that was actually inspired by people like Cousteau to go into his field of study. And I think about the age of 10 or 9, I was drawing the blueprints of the research vessel that I was going to have someday. That's been slow to come about, but that's not to say that I haven't had an opportunity to do some amazing stuff out on the field. Been on ships in Antarctica, I've been in submersibles, I've been able to join on expeditions to the Philippines, the latter of which has been a mainstay of a lot of our work here at the Academy to study the health of coral reefs, and sea urchins are integral to that health. And so I'm really 
honored to have been able to do that work there with uh, all of my colleagues here who are so concerned about the decline of coral reefs today. Yeah. When I was younger, I had this drive to be a marine biologist, but I um, ended up doing my undergraduate, my graduate studies at the University of Toronto in, in Canada, challenged by this distance from the ocean. Yeah. But I did a lot of work with a, a professor there, who uh, a late colleague of mine, a dearly beloved man named Malcolm Telford, who introduced me to the world of sea urchins by way of not only helping to teach the marine field course that we had out in New Brunswick in the Bay of Fundy, where the tides are 30 feet or more, Just a side note, the Bay of Fundy is fun indeed. It's right above Maine. And I was like, are 30-foot tides high? I don't know. And I did some piddling around, and it led me to the website bayoffundy.com, which bears a giant font, all caps, proclamation, Bay of Fundy Tides, the highest tides in the world. So apparently, yes, they are a big deal. But marine scientist and author Dr. Malcolm Telford took Rich under his watery wing. He was interested at first, at least initially, in these little crabs. There's these tiny little crabs that are parasitic on sea urchins. <gasps> How small are they? They're really small. They're about a quarter of an inch across at the most. <gasps> many of them, a great many of them, are a lot smaller than that. Wow. And they make their life living on the sea urchin, snipping off little pieces of spine and eating those, and just generally kind of making life maybe a little bit miserable for these sea urchins. We got the crabs. Mm -hmm. But he was interested in those. Very few people had actually done any work on those. And um, he started studying them. And he realized that people knew a lot more about crabs than they did about the hosts. And he started getting interested in sand dollars. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's walked on a beach where sand dollars wash up knows that these things can wash up in, in huge numbers. Some of them have holes right through them. Some of them are extremely, extremely flat. And he began to wonder what's the relationship between the holes and the flatness. Oh. And he got more interested in the hosts than he did in the crabs in the end. <laughs> and I came along at around the time when he was switching his research program to all of this cool sand dollar stuff and also fell in love with the sand dollars because that was a really interesting set of models about how they lived in in their environments that were completely wrong. Really? <laughs> yes. Um, there was a supposition that they walked around like little sieves to sieve the sand and get the particles out of the sand to feed on. And 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 I studied studying their their functional morphology. I wasn't always an evolutionist. I was, well, we're all always evolutionists. But <laughs> I wasn't really studying what the relationships were amongst all the myriad different forms of sand dollars there might be. I was really interested in what's known as functional morphology. Mm -hmm. So that was a different ology. I was, yeah. I was a functional morphologist. And functional morphology is all about asking, why does this part do this? It's the why, while evolutionary biology is like the who. And when Rich's mentor switched from crabs to echinoderms, Rich, too, was all aboard the echinology train, like toot toot, the, in the functional morphology party car. Particularly interested in the tube feet, which are tiny little cylindric, really extensible, really extendable tubes, fluid-filled tubes that, that all sea urchins have that they can use to extend out into the water or into the environment. And there's a little 
sticky little pad on the end. Some people call it a sucker, although we're not too sure how much sucking is involved. A lot of people think of them as little plungers or something like that. But they're very, very tiny on mm-hmm. sand dollars. They're so small that they're very difficult to see with the naked eye, and they're much less than the width of a human hair in some of the species. Oh, wow. But they're extremely dexterous. They can be very strong for their size, and they actually pick up the sand particles underneath the sand dollar and then pass them to the mouth along these grooves that you can see if you turn a sand dollar over. Mm-hmm. Um, the mouth is in the center of, the, of this disc, and the sand dollars are passing using these tube feed to pass these particles into the mouth. We found out that that was the true feeding mechanism. But a lot of folks had suggested that the holes that you see in what are called keyhole sand dollars, these are th- things that you find in Florida and some places and actually along the, the um, Mexican coast to the south of California and all through the Gulf of Mexico Mm-hmm. And the Gulf of California, you find these animals that have holes punched right through their bodies. How do they, yeah, is one of them their butt? What's going on? No, well, they do have a butt. <laughs> but uh, that butt is has a very special location on the bottom of this, the flat bottom of the sand dollar. But these holes, there's variable number, but usually five or six of them. And they occur quite a long ways from wherever you would expect a butt opening to occur. Uh Um, They occur in the rays of the animal. They occur towards the edges. And the supposition was that they shorten the pathway of the food that sieved on the top of the animal Mm -hmm. to the mouth. But nothing could be further from the truth. Almost nothing goes down through those holes. What are they for? Buoyancy? Well, turns out through the pioneering work of of Malcolm many years ago, that when you take these sand dollars and you put them in a wind tunnel, Mm -hmm. they have some very interesting properties. Someone put them in a wind tunnel? They put them in a wind tunnel (laughs) to simulate the flow of ocean currents over Mm -hmm. the body. And what he found out was that there was what they call an induced flow up through these holes. Oh, wow. Okay. So why the heck would they do that? I don't know. Well, if you look edge on at a sand dollar, they have a very flat bottom mm-hmm. and a curved top. Yeah. And it should remind you of an airplane wing. Right. Curved surface, it turns out, induces the flow to accelerate. And when the flow accelerates, it experiences a drop in pressure. Uh-huh. So that's what keeps the 747 up, uh, in part. Yeah. And that's called lift. Sand dollars experience lift because when you look at them edge on, they look a lot like an airplane wing. Lift is not so good for a sand dollar. I was going to say, do they want to stay in one place? They want to stay in one place. They're very, very picky about the types of sea bottom that they live on. And there are a whole lot of problems with just the, the whole idea of lift and a sand dollar don't go well together. Yeah. So... There are three different ways to counteract lift. One of them is to hold on. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately for the sand dollars, evolution has given them very, very small tube feet. So there's not much to hold on to. And they live on sand. So what what would they hold on to anyway? (laughs) 
So Rich says the second way to counteract lift is just to be heavier, which is why we pay fees when we fly with heavy luggage, he says, and partly why sand dollar skeletons have a thicker rim along the edges, kind of like a crust on a toast. And that's called a peripheral ballast system. But evolution delivered a third option to this type of sand dollar, and that option is called lunules. Holy smokes. The third and, I think, most interesting way is to reduce this pressure differential between the bottom and the top. You can see that that's exactly what those holes are doing. It's kind of like the same, same principle at work when, when anti-aircraft guns shoot holes through airplane wings, right? They don't stay up very well. Mm-hmm. And the sand dollar is actually exploiting that equalization of pressure, helps them stay in place. Why do we find their skeletons on the beach? And is it lucky or not? Uh, it's always lucky always to find lucky. a sand dollar. <laughs> I don't care where you are. Um, but ye, the, the main reason, certainly here in California, where we run into the ones on the beach here, almost literally run into them, mm-hmm. they die. They pass away for a variety of different reasons. They reach the end of their lifespan, which... Nobody really knows exactly how long that is, but it can be probably a couple of decades, which is what? which is pretty old yes. for an invertebrate. Yeah, for sure. Um, there are actually sea urchins that have been estimated to live over a century. I can't. I don't believe you. I want a polygraph. 100-year-old sea urchins, with some estimates going up to 200 years. This is a fact you will be telling people at dinner parties well, for less than a century, because you don't live as long as a sea urchin. As members of the big sea urchin family, mm-hmm. sand dollars that are 20 years old probably aren't the oldest type of sea urchin that, that you would run across. So it's even more staggering than that. But if you get a storm, the sand dollars are scoured up. It doesn't matter how much they try to counteract the lift. They become they get dug basically out by the waves and they get washed up because sand dollars almost universally live in areas of high, what they call high hydrodynamic activity. There's a lot of currents flowing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of currents being generated by wave backwash. Surf's up. And so these various adaptations are truly astounding. And when I started realizing that these are really complex animals, in spite of their relatively simple appearance, they're, I, I am nowhere close to finished with them. <laughs> <laughs> and as far as their relatively simple appearance, the globe-shaped test of the sea urchin is just the skeleton. And just like that, any sand dollar that you find on the beach would look way different alive. Not bony or stony or grayish-white, but alive, it would look darker black or purplish in color with skin over it. And underside, it looks like moving toothbrush bristles. It's so unsettling and very cool. And he could study these things for like 200 more years and still be curious, which again, 200 years, the potential lifespan of a sea urchin. Wait, how does he know that? Do they have diaries? Do they write memoirs? I mean, molecularly, sort of. But the, the, the sea urchins that are a century or so old, those are uh, estimates taken by they, they make little growth rings in, 
in certain parts of the little plates that make up this test. Mm -hmm. And by studying that and doing analytical work to try and figure out what those rings actually represent, and by doing experimental work in keeping these things in captivity, yeah, it's a, they can probably be 100 or more years old. You ever um, eat uni? I do. You do? How do you feel about it? And what is uni? Well, uni, uni is um, a very nutritious substance that the sea urchins make. It's um, basically their gonads. Really? Yeah. I've heard it referred to as roe, but roe is really just eggs. Yeah. If you eat salmon roe or something like that, that's just the eggs from from the salmon. You're not eating the whole gonad, but in, in sea urchins, you're actually eating the whole gonad, which is why it's okay to eat males as well as females. So you're not throwing away half the catch. The sea urchin fishery in California is very heavily regulated in the South because the one that people really prefer, the big fat red urchins that have mm -hmm. big, big gonads. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to their own detriment, yeah. really. Yeah. The, you know, size does sometimes matter. <laughs> and in this case, um, it matters for the fishery. And people don't don't eat the purple ones quite so much. They're the common ones that you oh. find along in the shallower water along the shoreline here. But uh, uni is um, a delicacy. It's It tastes really, really, really good. Mm -hmm. I mean, for those of us who, I don't know if you've tried it. Have I've you tried, tried it, it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was scared of it for a long time. Then I was like, oh, this is yeah. really good. Did you go back for seconds? I did. <laughs> there you go. If you have never seen fresh uni, it looks like a golden colored tongue. It looks a lot like a tiny, like a cat tongue, but it, but gold. And it's kind of globby and buttery in texture. And it tastes like when you pull up to the beach and you open the car door and you say, oh, I am at the beach. It's salty. It's briny. It's the tiniest bit fishy, but mostly it, it just is like feeling wind on the shoreline. Kind of like if a crab and oyster brine collabed and launched a line of salty pudding. And as famed uni enthusiast and chef Ali Buzari described it to the Splendid Table, sea urchin gonads being really delicious to predators, which include like otters and fish and humans like us, because sea urchin biology requires them to hang onto water in the salty ocean. So, quote, they stockpile stuff that water likes to attach to. They stockpile sugars, amino acids, and salts, which is incredible for us, he writes, because those are maybe the three most delicious types of molecules in the edible world. Sweet, salty, and umami. They basically brine themselves for us, Ali says. And every time I eat uni, I think, wow, it's so good. But it must be so bad for marine ecology. I'm fun. And I always wondered, how are sea urchins doing population-wise? How are they doing? Because I see sand dollars, and I think not a lot of people are hunting or it seems like are interested in a sand dollar alive. They're like, you're dead, your skeleton, it's going on my bookshelf. But sea urchins, in general, do they reproduce slowly? How how are they doing and why? Yeah, it's I have so like, many questions. It's like anything. If you think about birds, you know, how are birds doing? Well, if you're a starling in North America or any of a number of house sparrows or whatever, they're probably doing pretty good. Yeah. But there are other species that are doing 
pretty badly. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for the sea urchins. Uh, I, I would say that the red urchin, which is a deeper water species, probably doing fine. So it's not, it's not an immediate danger of being over-harvested. But there is a northern Atlantic species called Echinus esculentus. And esculentus means edible. I had to look that up afterward because contrary to assumption, I could not tell by the name. And as you can tell from the name, it's a very well-known, much, very long-known species of urchin that was harvested for its uni for many, 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 many years to the point where it's become threatened. Uh And so that particular species is in a bit more bit more trouble there are several other species too that i would i would probably put on the threatened list because of the way they reproduce they do reproduce slowly there's a brooding species that lives in the caribbean that has become quite rare because its environment keeps getting disturbed and it's a, it's one of those environments there's a conflict there because of nice warm lagoonal beaches you know mm-hmm. and people like to use those for things that sea urchins don't really like very much mm-hmm. they're particular about the types of particles and things that they they encounter in their environments, it's no different on these beaches where this particular species lives. And so I think its its populations are hugely diminished. There are actually laws in place in places like East Africa, uh, along South Africa. There's uh, an animal there called the pansy shell, Mm -hmm. which is actually a sand dollar. Uh, It's got two holes in it, and it's got an outline that's a little bit the shape of a pansy flower when you look straight on a pansy flower. That's what you see when you look at the sand dollar. And a lot of people have collected those alive because they are also deep purple. And so people like to collect those. Of course, they die. They get a little smelly. You know, People don't think too much about a marine animal's feelings. And so they take them out of the water and they die. There are now laws to protect those. So it depends on which species and more on what kind of uni you should eat in a bit. Also, broadly speaking, the spherical globe-shaped urchins are regular echinoids, but sand dollars and sea biscuits, which look like cookies with a bunch of legs, those are less symmetrical and they're called irregular echinoids, which seems insulting, but honestly, I doubt a single sand dollar gives a shit what we call them. Well, what about the sea urchins, sea urchin spikies? What's Uh, going on? The opposite of a sand dollar. Well, you asked me about the name. Yes. You started by asking me about the name. Yeah. And the name uh, echinoid Mm -hmm. comes from an ancient Latin word meaning spiny. Mm. Echin or echino or echinus, any of the variants on that name, means spiky. So if you see that root somewhere, you'll Mm -hmm. know that it probably has something to do with Spikes sticking out. You're a spikeologist. I'm a spikeologist. <laughs> yes, I am. Why do they have all those spikes? And how hard is it energetically for them to make them? Well, it's they all, all the sea urchins are characterized by these spikes. Um, and they are marvels of engineering. Mm-hmm. I would start out by saying that because they sit on a little ball and socket joint. So the the spine itself has a socket in the bottom of it that fits over this ball on the top of a sea urchin, which is why when you pick up a completely clean sea urchin, you see all these beautiful smooth knobs and balls all scattered all over it. And it makes this beautiful geometric pattern. Mm-hmm. Some species are are prized for that for that beauty and the, the aesthetic of having one of these on your coffee table. Mm-hmm. 
So each spine is on a ball socket. So when you see an urchin skeleton, you now know why its evolution did such a knobby job. But the spines themselves have a ring of muscle around that base so that they can move forward, backward. They don't rotate on the, on the socket, but they, they can swing around. It's kind of like the stick shift in your car. Oh, and so you've got um, the ability to point this spine at anything that might be approaching. So they use them for protection. Sea urchins that have the really big, long spines, like the black sea urchin of the tropics that a lot of people have run into. I don't know if you're a diver. I'm not. It's wet. But there are lots of people who are, who consider them kind of the scourge of the coral reef. Oh, really? Yeah, because they have, um, they've made the mistake of bumping into one. <laughs> right. They're the cactus of the sea, you I have see. To be, you have to be pretty careful. Yeah. I mean, it's like the choya down in San Diego. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you don't want to step on one of those. And sea urchins are actually, um, might in some ways be worse because they have this skin over them. And when they pierce your body, um, that skin also goes with it, and that can break down bacteria, get in there, and you can get an infection. So they're, they're kind of nasty. A lot of people think that those are poisonous. But the truth of the matter is that the big, long spines on these black sea urchins are actually not poisonous, but hmm? they have a secret. If you manage somehow through your accidental brush up against a sea urchin to get to an even lower layer of spines, there's a set of shorter spines below that long set of spines that do have little poison glands in the tips. Really? How venomous are they? They hurt like heck. They do? Do they sting? Do they burn? Do they Uh, itch? They sting. I would make it equivalent to a bee sting. Oh, that's that's pretty hardcore. Yeah, it's pretty hardcore and it lasts for a long time. I've been hit by some species during my expeditionary work and um, yeah, you feel it. Just think about 60 bee stings going right into your foot all at the same time and then leaving the stinger in your foot. But Rich says that spines themselves can do different things. And sea urchins have gone through a whole bunch of evolutionary steps in diversifying the purpose of all those different spines. So when you look at a sea urchin, you're not just seeing a ball with spikes on it. Uh You're actually seeing a highly evolved organism that has made the best out of the equipment that evolution handed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that in, that ranges from poisonous spines all the way to spines that look like umbrellas, spines that have no skin on them to encourage the growth of other organisms wow. like clams and things like that, or, or snails, barnacles, tube worms, and things like that to disguise the smell of the sea urchins so that they're not bothered by predators. Because remember, they have that uni inside them. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know. I'm one of those predators. Yes. And as much as we like that stuff, fish like it even more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, when it comes to the food web, whereabouts are they in the oceanic food web? They're everywhere, actually. Yeah. Um, they're there as prey animals, but they are also top herbivores in a lot of different ecosystems. It's been demonstrated through study that if you remove through overfishing the top herbivore fish in a coral reef, the sea urchins explode in number because the amount of algae that the fish would be eating is now available for urchin growth. 
Listen, man, fish are away, algae's on tap, urchin party is raging. It's like, oh, it's, oh, it's spikes, gonads, poison. I got a mouth on my belly, a butt on the top. They got light sensors on 1,500 tube feet. They're like in a live koosh ball. Shit gets crazy on a coral reef. It's a disco. And the urchins will very rapidly become the top herbivore in a, in a setting like that. So they're not necessarily an indicator of a healthy coral reef, but they do help on the coral side of the battle between this constant battle between algae and coral. A little bit of algae is good, mm -hmm. but too much, like in most things, can be detrimental to the growth of the coral. Urchins kind of fill that role of the herbivore fish in some of these environments today. And as mentioned... They're all over the world. Now, since Rich loves the phylogeny, the ancestry and the relatedness of echinoids, how many different sea urchins are lurking out there for us to love on? There are probably about 1,200 known species. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the fossil record, there's probably about 10 times that number. So um, remember, we've got a long time to look back. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and those are just the ones that are fossilized and that we've discovered. But some of the burrowing urchins... Um, help turn over the sediment in the bottom of the sea um, and do the same sorts of things as earthworms might do in your garden by turning mm -hmm. over the sediment and turning over the soil. Uh, and they eat it as well. And through their feces, mm -hmm. their poops, uh, contribute organic material to the sediment as well. So they're they're pretty important just about everywhere you look in, an, in any given environment. Can I ask you questions sure. from listeners? But I have to warn you. Yeah. Um, one question often leads to another. I, oh, I and know. So, <laughs> I know. And there's sometimes no simple answer. Oh, the answer, it depends, is probably the most popular it's answer. It's my favorite one. <laughs> It's my favorite answer. Oh my answer. gosh. We have, um, yeah, we have so many. Are you ready? Amazing. Okay, first though, we're going to scatter some money into the hands of science and people who need it. So each episode we donate to a cause of the ologist choosing. This week, we're sending it straight back to the California Academy of Sciences. I went there as a kid. It inspired my love for science. Also, Cal Academy is a really powerful voice for biodiversity research and exploration, environmental education, and sustainability across the globe. Thank you, Cal Academy. A donation went to them. So here are words from sponsors that make giving from ologies around the year possible. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you're not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies.
Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces that keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything, Allie Ward. And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed essential for women at 18 plus multivitamin has these high quality, traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning ritual. I, that's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. And thank you, patrons who support the show and send in just the best questions ever, including a brainy one that was also asked by Christian Krupp and Jessica Cuddy. Lee wants to know, do sea urchins have a brain and how do they walk with those spikes? Ah, 
Okay. Well, that's actually two questions, but I let's, know. let's start with the brain thing. Um, the sea urchins do not have a brain. In fact, it's probably stretching the definition of a ganglion to say that they have ganglia. They okay. have little nerve clusters here and there, and there's a ring that, that kind of acts as a central processing unit, uh, a ring of nerves that go around the esophagus just inside the jaw apparatus. Mm -hmm. But sea urchins are, either have no brain at all or they are all brain because there's nerve tissue underneath that skeleton everywhere. There's nerve tissue through all of the skin that covers all the spines and all of the rest of the body. There's so much nerve tissue you, you um, can't help but think that if there's not thinking going on, at least there's some coordination. We don't understand exactly how all of that coordination happens, mm -hmm. but it's pretty clear, and this gets to the second question, that there is coordination happening because those nerve cells are talking to each other and telling each spine when it should swing, when it should move. In the sea urchins that have the really big tube feet, they're using those tube feet as well for locomotion and for holding themselves in, in place. So... Yes, that brain is, it, it'd be almost like if you could tell each individual hair which Ooh. way to move on a given morning. You could have all kinds of new hairstyles. Oh, I wish. Um, I would be seriously compromised, <laughs> but a lot of other more hairy humans would have a great time with, with all of that hair. But yeah, basically the sea urchins can, can tell each of the spines which way to move. And I mentioned earlier that the spines can be pointed at things, so they can actually sense pressure waves in the water. There's probably also some ability to sense the chemicals that fish give off, and so the spines can point in the direction of an attack, uh, and they coordinate that as well. There's also some evidence that sea urchins can see. I was going to ask, yeah, what's their sensory situation like? Patrons who also wanted to know, Robin Cohen, Ali Barg, Harper Thomas, and Al Lopez, and researchers found that we share about a third of a sea urchin's 23,000 genes. And Bronte May wants to know, what is it like to be a sea urchin? What are they able to sense compared to humans? It's mostly chemosensory. They mostly, by sensing chemicals in the seawater, they have a very sophisticated set of receptors for, for detecting different, for want of a better word, smells in, in, in the seawater. They can feel vibrations. Uh, they can use their tube feet to, to taste things. And it's been shown that there's some of these nerves that are spread all over the outside of the test can actually sense light. And by the way the light is falling on the spines and on the tube feet and on these different cells, they can actually form a rudimentary image. No. So they can tell a difference between a large black spot on a white background or a small one. Uh, they seem to be able to tell the difference between a square and a circle. Um, so they are actually seeing things as well. And a lot of sea urchins respond to light. Oh, my gosh. Does that keep them in the right depth of water? Uh, I'm not so sure it's about the depth. It's probably more about finding a place to hide. So sea urchins, they can be 200, like a wizard. They have a butt on their face. They taste with their spines. They see with their feet, and their whole body is a brain. And a lot of them are very active at night. So there are 
nocturnal urchins that come out as the sun goes down uh, and they do feeding at that time. Some of them reproduce at that time. Sea urchins, the sexes are separate. The males and females have uh, are, are separate and the females will release eggs from their ovaries. The males will release the sperm from their uh, testes and the sperm and the eggs will mix in the seawater. So it's kind of a hit and miss sort of unromantic situation <laughs> Uh, that uh, has to be kind of coordinated through group activities. They'll get together for this. Oh, my um, God. Or they'll release at a certain time when they can sense that somebody else upstream might have the right set of gametes for them. That's also done through chemosensory and maybe a little bit of tactile, maybe because some of the sea urchins do sidle up to one another and, and release uh, eggs and sperm at the same time. Which is very cute. Which I is very cute, cute, of course. <laughs> You know what's not cute? Depend well, depending on who you ask, their teeth. Let's talk about it. First-time question askers Emily Burke and Casey had questions, as did Lenny Olsleth, Kimberly Hoffman, Natalie Gertz-Young, Gerald Thompson, maritime archaeologist Chanel Zapp, and Francesca Huggins, who asked with admirable frankness, what is up with the sea urchin's hell mouth? Cassandra Grafstrom wants to know, or rather demanded, please talk about sea urchin teeth? and teeth is all caps, which makes me wonder, is the thing in a sand dollar when you rattle it around, is that a tooth? Ah. Separate question on It's accent. several teeth. It is. Uh, if, if you have a sand dollars, for example, have the doves of peace inside, Yeah. Uh, people hear this, the legend of the sand dollar. And one of the parts of the legend is that there are five doves of peace inside. Well, each of those five doves of peace is actually a jaw that holds a tooth. <laughs> I love the idea of being like a disembodied <laughs> jaw versus a dove of peace. Like, very not, different. <laughs> not quite the, you know, poets are amazing. Yeah, good work. They do have such amazing imaginations. But sea urchins in general, not all sea urchins, and there's a remarkable group of sea urchins that do not have a jaw apparatus, but the vast majority of sea urchin species, particularly the globose ones with the big spines, mm -hmm. and the sand dollars, as it turns out, have a five-part jaw apparatus. It's actually a very complicated structure. The general name for it is Aristotle's lantern. Okay, casual. So I'm going to shed light on Aristotle's lantern for you. <laughs> and the, the lantern is kind of like the chuck of a drill. Okay. Except instead of having three pieces that come together to hold the drill bit, there are five. Oh, okay. And just a little etymological trivia. Aristotle described the urchin test as looking like a five-sided lantern. But then that story just morphed into talking about the jaw parts. Also, just to say, I never knew that the little claw part on a drill was called a chuck. Maybe we could call it Chuck's lantern. But yes, jaw parts. And there's a set of very complicated muscles that open and close that, that chuck so that the teeth will come together and chew and retract again for the next bite. There's a set of muscles that allow the lantern to protrude out through the mouth to chew onto the sea bottom. And they do that to chew on algae and, and things like that. And then pull it back in again. It can be rotated or swiveled a little bit to go in, in different directions once it is protruded. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a really complicated thing. The teeth themselves are set inside the different, the five pieces of this chuck. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're a little bit harder than the rest of the skeleton. They have a higher 
magnesium content. Magnesium makes calcium carbonate, which is what the skeleton is made of. It's basically limestone, but in a special form. Mm -hmm. It's tough and it's hard and resistant to cracking, but the teeth are really, really hard because of this magnesium content. And so they, they will chew on the rock to remove algae for their food, but they wear out. And so they're constantly being replaced at the other end. Oh. So they're constantly being added to at the inside of the animal and they move down this slide. It's actually called a tooth slide <laughs> uh, very carefully and slowly over time as the business end wears out. Well, when, say, a sand dollar dies, do the teeth, are they smaller than the hole so they just kind of are out yeah, there scattered? that's exactly what happens. <laughs> um, so if you look at... The globo sea urchins, mm -hmm. their mouth is really huge. And so the when one of those dies and falls apart, the test itself is loosely more loosely held together, so it falls apart. But one of the first things to happen is for the lantern to get lost through that big mouth. Mm -hmm. But in the sand dollars, the mouth is much smaller than the lantern, but the teeth aren't, as you say. And when the decomposition of the lantern happens, it falls apart into the doves, but the the teeth themselves also fall out of those and just usually they're lost out through the mouth by the time you find them on the beach. Just lost at sea. A bunch just of lost, teeth. Yeah. <laughs> lost. Teeth. Please return to owner. Yeah. Um, five teeth. Remember, five they teeth. have to have five teeth. Five teeth. A full set. You know, <laughs> orthodontistry is very expensive. For, <laughs> I imagine. But, I mean, it's, luckily it's fewer to brush. Yeah. It is fewer to brush. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, they're eating stuff that's good for them. Mm -hmm. So, and heck, if they get a cavity, they just grow a new one. Keep growing. <laughs> what about, um, Hannah Roy wants to know, in your opinion, what is the coolest sea urchin? It's very important for them to know. Thank you in advance. It is very important to know what your coolest <laughs> sea urchin is. Um, and of course, every scientist will say, oh, they're all my favorites. Uh. I can't make a choice. <laughs> but for me, there's probably, it's it's got to be the sand dollars. Yeah. But that's a bit of a cop-out because it's a big group and, and you know, there are uh, close to 200 different species of sand dollars living today and they all exhibit weird structure. This is one of the reasons I like them for the study of evolutionary novelty. The holes themselves yeah. is, you know, that doesn't happen in all of the sand dollars. It's a small subgroup. Let me see. I've always been fascinated by the deep sea and there are some ironically not sand dollars but some sea urchins that live in the deepest parts of the ocean um, that are truly spectacular and one of them they don't have a common name really no they're unless you want to call them fire urchins fire urchins yes that's a shallow water representative of this group of about 60 species which are actually soft-bodied sea urchins. What about their skeleton? They have skeletons, but they're loosely, all the plates, each, the skeleton of a sea urchin is made up of basically 20 different rows of plates. So there are 10 rows of paired plates. And those plates come apart when the animal dies because they're held together by connective tissue. Mm -hmm. But in these deep sea ones, the ratio of connective tissue to skeletal pieces is really, really high. And so they're basically floppy things. 
So I dove into some video to gaze upon them because when a world-renowned echinologist says they have a favorite specimen, you gotta look. And I was transfixed by video of what appeared to be a velvet beret in stunning oranges and reds and purples, but with spiked fringe along its lower rim. But don't let that elegance deceive you. And you get these photos of these deep sea urchins, and they look like sea urchins. Mm -hmm. They're nice and domed and, and rounded. They have probably the most toxic spines of any sea urchin. Uh. Um, I've I've been hit only once or twice by those, and I don't want to repeat the the performance because it's it took probably about six hours for the pain to subside. It was like putting your finger in the electric socket. Oh wow! Where was this? It was in Florida. It was actually on one of the submersible trips, and several of these fire urchins live in that area and when when they're collected live and kept nice and cold like the deep sea is um they're still very much active mm-hmm. <laughs> and ready to do their thing um but there's very very little known about what these animals are doing down on the in the deep ocean they can live 4 miles down maybe more floppy creatures named after fire 4 miles under the sea and yet they seem to be pretty common, and it's hard to take a bottom photo without seeing one of these things. Uh, certainly hard to go on any given submersible uh, ride or expedition. They're doing a lot of these things with remote-operated vehicles now, mm-hmm. and on nearly every single dive, they're going to see some of these. Well, how come it's your favorite if it did you so dirty? <laughs> how come it's not your sworn enemy? <laughs> because that sting... Uh-huh represents the accumulated brilliant activities of natural selection Mm -hmm. that has turned up uh, an organism that just leads you to want to know more. This is spoken like a true functional morphologist, psychologist, (laughs) indeed. Well, and their place in the evolutionary history of the sea urchins is also not very well known. At one time, they were thought to be primitive remnants of ancient sea urchins that we do know were probably fairly floppy-bodied. Me too. So back 300, 400 million years ago, the most of the sea urchins living at that time were relatively soft-bodied. So to see that in a modern group made everybody excited. Oh, we've got the living fossil. But it, it's a representation of a convergence, what we call a convergence in evolution. Mm-hmm. Different organisms will meet the same problem with a very similar answer. Uh-huh. How many times has that problem been solved in very similar ways? Mm-hmm. And these soft-bodied, the, the technical name for these things is the kinothurioida. Therioida. What does therioida mean? Well, I don't know. The closest um, I've been able to get is th- is thurus, which means ugly. But oh, uh, I, I don't think these things are ugly, spiny things at all. <laughs> um, I'm hoping that there's a different name. I'm hoping. Well, a different <laughs> meaning for that word. But they're fantastic colors. They can also be very fast. Some of them have little hooves on the bottoms of the spines. You had somebody asking about spines. Yeah. And they're little hooves, little white hooves that keep them from sinking into the mud. And these things run across the sea bottom. Oh my God. They actually can can move at, well, for a sea urchin, incredible speeds. Yeah. What is, what is that? Is that like a one mile an hour? I would or? say several meters a minute. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good that's for pretty a little guy. That's pretty good for a sea urchin. For a cooch ball? Yeah. And these guys are not small. Some of them are at least the size of a basketball. 
the size of a basketball, and they're called fire urchins. Fire urchins, yes, <gasps> the echinotheroids. There's oh, only about 65 known species of them, but the other thing that uh, is cool about them, there are structures that occur in between the spines that have jaws on them, and they're called pedicellarii. Mm-hmm. So I'm a pedicellariologist as well. <laughs> um, these are uh, stalks that terminate in three things like like ice tongs. Wow. They can be also very poisonous. They can be used to clean the test because it's very important to keep the skin clean. Some of them are used to scrape bacteria off. And there are, interestingly enough, there are single-celled organisms that live inside commensally, inside the pedicellaria that eat the bacteria. So there's a, a whole system working there. There are other types of pedicellaria that do all kinds of different things, and we don't even know what those are. The, the reasons for their differences in morphology haven't yet been fully understood. Why are they soft-bodied? I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> Although there's a pretty good supposition that an animal that large is having a little trouble with getting enough calcium carbonate in the deep ocean. The reactions for extracting calcium carbonate from seawater to make your skeleton don't run very well mm. in high-pressure areas. So these weak-bodied stunners, clearly his favorite genus and now yours, are the size of a dang basketball. They live under incredible pressure. They have more spines, like ice tong trident hands, and it's just too much to make bones in the cold, inky depths of the ocean. And they're going to hurt you about it. Which reminds me, a lot of you asked for advice in case you ever get smote by nature's pinhead hellraiser. So here's some advice, since you asked. Rachel Murdoch, Mackenzie Sire, Kate Waters, Rose Scher, Avon, Chasmore, Grace Robichaux, Jules Kingsland, Yakin Yang, and Evie Sanchez. So according to the 2021 paper, Sea Urchin Toxicity, you have to remove the spines ASAP like you would an emergency splinter because they can keep releasing venom even after they become disembodied. So quick is good. And that venom contains toxins and compounds with very scary names like glycosides and hemolysis proteases and histamine, bradykinin. I don't even know what that is, but I don't want it in my foot. So try to get them out and soak the wounded area in hot water for about an hour. That might also help loosen them. You can take a Tylenol or ibuprofen if you need to. Make sure you have a tetanus shot and see a doctor if you start to notice any signs of infection or if you're immunocompromised. And some neosporin on the wound can help too. And if a dot remains, that might be pigment from the sea urchin skin. Which, side note, to patrons who asked, Brittany Corrigan, McElroy, Heidi Wright, Wren, Emma Luck, and first-time asker Julie Miller, I spent a few hours trying to get a straight answer on why sea urchins can be such beautiful colors. And the best answer I could find was a line in a paper that said, quote, ecological significance of color morphological variation remains unclear, which I imagine was more frustrating to write for the researchers who studied it for three years than it was for us to hear it. But If you have an animal embedded in your alive flesh, you don't need to pour candle wax on it, Alia Myers, who asked, or wait until the full moon to drizzle oil on it, like first-time question asker Rachel Hazlitt asked about, or even take a whiz on your wounds. As much as you might want to, Amy Naramatsu, Breck Bothrath, Ben W., Jesse Moses, and Jesse Dragon, most of whom likely saw the 2007 classic animated feature Surf's Up, in which a penguin unleashes just a torrent of urine on another penguin. And I don't want to ruin any penguin pee parties, 
But as you may know, in your heart of hearts, birds do a buy one, get one on excretory hybrids. So your first aid kit need not contain a penguin on diuretics. They don't even pee like that. But yes, there was a wonderful cameo by a fire urchin in that film. Fire urchins, you're witches. We love you. You know what? Let's stay on them. A passion for fire urchins has been ignited. Which I think dovetails nicely with the reason for why they have such virulent toxins in the spines. Because if you don't have a hard test and stiff, big spines to protect yourself, you're going to resort to some other, you know, the nuclear option. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're going to go for, uh, for toxins to help protect you from whatever fish predators there might be there. Well, speaking of protection, a lot of people, including Susie Newby, need to talk to you about hats. Sea urchins hats. and hats. <laughs> oh, this is that's hilarious. <laughs> Do they really wear shells as hats, or is that an internet lie? It is not a lie. <gasps> they don't do it in nature. Okay. And for anyone that missed this because they had a busy 2020, there was a post on Reddit that made all the internet rounds, and it featured a home aquarist explaining that their pet urchins like to cover their domes, but the shells that they kept picking up were harming other critters in their aquarium, so they 3D printed these festive little hats for their urchins, which was visually a sight to behold. And patrons Robert Foster, Harper Thomas, Quinn Newman, Adam Weaver, Asia Yeager, Seguani Dana, first-time question asker Lizzie Carr, Dirty Donnie, Matt Thompson, Mel Castellan, and Stephanie Broaches all asked. And Susie Newby, it is not a lie that sea urchins do this, but in the wild they are not so stylish because... Uh, because there are very few 3D printers <laughs> four miles down in the ocean, but <laughs> they will pick up anything in the environment, some species, okay, sand dollars, of course, don't. Um, they have different ways of protecting themselves. But there are some species, including some species that are named for that behavior called collector urchins, <gasps> that will use the tube feet to pick up things in the environment and wear them. That looks amazing on you. Oh. Like a little hat. Like a little hat. So if you present them with nothing else than one of these 3D printed hats, mm -hmm. uh, they'll wear it. Oh. They're styling. They look great. Right now, as we sit here and talk about them, somewhere there are possibly thousands of urchins out there wearing a clamshell like a fedora. Absolutely. God, that's a beautiful thought. Yeah. Long before there were fedoras, mm -hmm. the sea urchins were wearing stuff. And they tend to do that to protect themselves maybe from sunlight, because I mentioned earlier that they do react to light, and so they might be protecting themselves a little bit from UV radiation and shallow water. But I think mostly they do it to hide. I think mostly they are picking these things up, putting them on tops of their... Well, they don't have heads, but they're putting them over the over their upper surfaces to make it harder to detect them. And that works in two ways. One is visually you can't see them. And for visually hunting predators like fish and things like that, it makes them harder to see. But I think they also use it because a lot of these things are actually still alive. Sea urchins will put 
pieces of algae on top of themselves. And of course, algae has a smell. So they're masking their own scent. I mentioned earlier that there's types of sea urchins that encourage other organisms to grow on themselves. This is another way of solving the same problem again, mm -hmm. right? Masking your own scent by allowing other... So you become a little ecosystem mm -hmm. and you smell like that ecosystem instead of a sea urchin. The covering response, though, it can extend to some pretty weird stuff. Uh, they'll pick up other dead sea urchins and put no. those on top. Yeah, they'll wear those too. I have lots of photos of that. So an echinoderm is hiding from a killer by covering itself with its friend's corpse. And it's just another Tuesday in the ocean. Also, I should note that their butthole is at the top. So it's kind of wearing a hat that's also pants. Patron Jade Walker asked, do the shells they put on interfere with their feeding? And Jade, again, butthole up top, mouth at the bottom. But it's a great query, and somehow it landed me an hour later deep into a PDF of a study called Defecation Behavior of the Hairy Urchin, during which I learned that, yes, urchins poop from the crown of their knot head, but usually the tide and the water currents flush it away just like an automatic toilet at the mall that sometimes flushes while you're still on it. But on non-windy days, the urchins are like, I'm no fool. This water's too still. I don't want this all over my eye feet. And researchers observed that these hairy urchins just casually tip themselves over at about 30 degree angles to let the poop drop because there's not enough current. And I love this information. And I hope that these scientists' families appreciate the work that they have done as much as I do. But that did not answer anything about the hat situation. So I found the original Reddit thread and nestled in the awe of the comment section was a nugget from the original poster, Vanilla Bean 5813, who said, quote, the funniest part is that they move the hats to the side so they can poop. But what street fashion has Rich observed? Anything that's there, I've seen them wearing grocery lists. Oh. I've seen <laughs> that have fallen <laughs> into the ocean. I've seen them wearing bits of plastic wrappers, um, even a, a coin. Wow, that's that's styling. Yeah, that's looking good. Well, you know, they don't have pockets, but you can still <laughs> carry the change. Keep the change. Evolutionary change. How about that? <laughs> when you see something like that, do you gently pick? it off or do you say like you're using this i don't want to out you no i usually don't out them yeah um i'll take a photo mm -hmm. you know oh it's 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 always good to have an urchiny <laughs> uh instead of a selfie to, to an urchiny to to remember <laughs> uh, a spiky an ecky yeah. what about the biggest um flim flam that you'd like to debunk what is a myth that you'd love to bust about a sea urchin or a sand dollar Oh, I wasn't anticipating that question because I'm debunking myths all the time, mm -hmm. but it's usually coming from my fellow scientists. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me see. A myth about sea urchins. Well, there's, there is a myth. It's not so much a myth as an opinion. Mm -hmm. There are people out there that see urchins sea sea urchins, sea <laughs> squared urchins, um, as evil. <gasps> How dare? Well, yeah, that's kind of my response. There are people actively smashing sea urchins, 
probably as we speak, in places where the kelp forests have been severely harmed. Now, I understand why people feel that way. For a lot of people, sea urchins do just are just a spiky nuisance. Um, I would urge them to get to know them better, mm-hmm. but there and and the urchins that they're smashing are actually native species. So I, you know, if I need to go out and collect some sea urchins for my own research, I have to get permits out the wazoo. Mm-hmm. But there are people out there advocating for the wholesale destruction of a native species. Uh, and again, I understand why. I understand the economic reasons for wanting to do this. And it's it's very simple. And that is that the urchins have chewed up and basically destroyed the kelp forests in which a lot of other organisms that people want to encounter, use, harvest, make their homes. And the sea urchins are vilified. And I, I don't think it's it's upon us as humans to vilify anything in the first place that's that's a natural product of millions of years of, of evolution. That's hubris that, that kind of goes beyond the pale. But I do think that there is a solution to this that goes a lot deeper than destroying the sea urchins. Not that we can harvest them and use them for uni. There are people who have said, oh, these purple urchins, not the red ones, but the purple ones that, that are the most visible culprits, if you will, in the destruction of the kelp forests by chewing them down. Those purple urchins are hunting down the last vestiges of what was a once plentiful algal resource. Mm-hmm. You know, the kelp forests were, were once in good shape. And the real culprits in this are the people who have made it hard for kelp forests to regenerate over time by removing the top predators of the urchins, by changing the climate, by doing all of the things that that pollutants, things that kelp can't tolerate to build these magnificent ecosystems that once existed in huge abundance up and down the coast. So the vilification of the urchins in this picture is, I think, a little bit misplaced. Right. And scientists have found that although kelp is one of the fastest growing organisms on Earth, it just can't compete with the purple urchin explosion, which has grown 10,000%. According to Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife Scientists, which blame, rightfully, warming oceans and a drop in starfish, plus a huge sea otter decline due to toxic runoff and rabid hunting in the early 1900s. So if you're in an area with rapidly declining kelp forests, like California, hello, belly up to some free uni. It's almost free. A fishing license is less than 50 bucks a year, and you can grab up to 35 purple urchins per day. 35 a day is the limit. That's how many are out there. And in some areas with the worst kelp reduction, there's no limit to hand harvesting. Speaking of hand harvesting, wear gloves. So enjoy the uni if it's purple urchin and don't blame the urchins. They are just making the best out of a situation that we made bad. And you know, I was going to ask, I always ask, the hardest part about your job, I imagine that must be difficult. Is there anything annoying about being uh, an echinologist? Help me out. Echinologist. Echinologist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Is it the spikes? Is it being in submersibles if you have claustrophobia? What's the, is it emails? What's the one thing that you're like, uh, I love this job, but I hate this part of the job? <laughs> well, I don't think there's, well, there are very few scientists of which I'm aware that like going to meetings. Um, <laughs> but I also think that in all of the things that we don't like doing, there are occasional opportunities and gems of moments when the importance of what you're doing can really take hold. So it can be in the form of talking to people like yourself, doing a public outreach in the Philippines to talk to people about the importance of coral reefs, to reach out and talk to someone who is with a funding agency to show that the work that we do on a daily basis in a museum setting like this, uh, surrounded by the wonders of nature represented in the collections here, that this is a resource that helps us to understand the place of all of these organisms in this interconnected planet. Mm -hmm. You can't do anything on this planet without touching one of the things that we make it a point to study every day of our lives. So for me to complain about any aspect of being able to do a job that I've dreamt of doing since I was nine years old would be, uh, that's a crime of yeah. some sort. <laughs> I love this. This is maybe the first pass I've ever had on that, which is beautiful. But uh, what about your favorite thing? My favorite thing is probably... Making a discovery. Mm. And it can be a discovery of any type. And it can be tiny or it can be huge. But making a discovery about the interconnectedness of, of life on the planet. I, I, I'll give you a good example. I was really happy to be able to help lead an expedition in 2011 to the Philippines. And one of the components of that expedition was a deep sea dredging expedition where we set records for the depth off of the Philippines where we dredged, made discoveries of all kinds in this environment. And on one of the dredge halls, there was a piece of wood. And on that piece of wood was a tiny little white sea urchin, oh. no bigger than your pinky nail. Mm -hmm. Well, your pinky nail is pretty big, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but small, very, yeah. very small, inconspicuous. Didn't give it much of a thought at the time, except to wonder what the heck it was, until I discovered some months later that this was a member of a group of sea urchins that specializes in eating wood what? in the deep sea. What? A mile down. Did they evolve since shipwrecks or off of the coast of places where it's brackish? Oh, no, they evolved long before yeah. they were shipwrecks. <laughs> Just the like, same way as, you know, um, shipworms didn't evolve when they were ships. Yeah. They were around a lot longer. Um, what happens is that in the forests of the Philippines, you have tree falls. They fall into the rivers. They wash down the river. They slide out into the ocean at the deltas of these rivers. They float out at the surface for a while, mm -hmm. then they become literally waterlogged. The <laughs> logs will sink and these sea urchins find them and settle on them. And they are symbiotic with microorganisms that help break down the cellulose in the wood. Wow. Very, very specific. Kind of like termites. Mm -hmm. um, and 
that's how they make their living. So, so for every, th- every type of organism, there is a specialty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and these sea urchins specialize in eating wood. And what each log represents is this huge injection of food energy. It's almost like a stepping stone to these incredible whale fall communities that you read about. Whale dies and yeah. becomes the center of action for, you know, <laughs> becomes <Yeah>. the world's <laughs> biggest safe way for all kinds of worms <laughs> and things like this. And these sea urchins are doing the same thing. Cool. And they're probably living for a long time. Nobody knows how they find this stuff. Nobody knows how they find the wood. Nobody knows how they reproduce in such a way that their larvae can live long enough until they find a piece of wood. The mysteries go on and on. But all I can tell you is that this connection between a mountain forest in the Philippines and a deep sea community two miles down just fills me with awe. Oh, that's amazing. Would you believe it? Would you believe it? <laughs> you do have to branch out a little bit in, in studying these things. But, uh. I got to leave this one alone. <laughs> um, and I love that like that urchin, there's a few of you that do something very specialized and you're just perfect for the job. <laughs> well, I, I, I shudder to think sometimes about how many opportunities have been lost to make a discovery because you didn't have the right person at the right moment. Uh. Being prepared helps a lot. And so we populated the expedition with people who were likely to make those sorts of discoveries. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to keep doing that. Places like this, where the guy next door is an expert on food webs, or Mm -hmm. the the, the guy two doors down is an expert on coral distribution and reproduction. Mm -hmm. Uh, The person three doors down knows everything there is to know about soft corals. And the guy beyond that knows everything there is to know about nudibranchs. So... When you put a team like that together and throw them out in the field, it's incredible the synergies that can grow out of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I once found a small sand dollar that had picked out of the sediment some weird star-shaped things that were about sand grain, large sand grain size. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what they were, but the person sitting next to me happened to know that it was a species of foraminiferin. It's a single-celled, almost like a almost like an amoeba with a shell mm-hmm. that lived in the sand. Oh. And it it um, lived in large enough numbers that this species of sea urchin, of sand dollar, had specialized in feeding only on those. Unbelievable. I would never have known that. Yeah. I might have cleaned that stuff off yeah, yeah. <laughs> to make the specimen nice. But she was able to tell me, you know, hey, wait a minute, that's that's mm-hmm. that's interesting. That is one of the delights. Mm -hmm. of the work that I do. I will not have regrets as long as I can work with people and organisms that never let me down when it comes to something cool. Well, I hope there's more technologists out there. Echonologists? Echonologists. There are, well, I hope there are now. That are coming coming up too. (laughs) Yeah, get out there, start drawing your deep sea uh, (laughs) research vessel. So ask aquatic people some fiery questions. And you can follow the California Academy of Arts and Sciences on Twitter. I love them. And on Instagram, they're at Cal Academy. We are at Ologies on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on both at Allie Ward with one L. You can say hi, show us your Ologies merch, say hello to my dog. 
So there are links to a bunch of stuff we talked about and more info on the wonderful Rich Moy is at the link in the show notes. It's alleywarecom slash ologies slash echinology. Hello to the Ologies subreddit and the Ologies podcast Facebook group, which is admined by Aaron Talbert. Thank you to Shannon and Bonnie of the podcast. You are that for helping with admining. Thank you to everyone at patreon.com slash ologies who supports the show always. Susan Hale works on so much behind the scenes, as does Noelle Dilworth. Emily White of The Wordery makes our professional transcripts, and Caleb Patton bleeps them. Those are available for free at alleywar.com slash ologies-extras. Zeke Rodriguez-Thomas of MindGem Media heads up the Smologies efforts, and those are truncated and defilthed episodes that come out every few weeks. They are suitable for all ages. Stephen Ray Morris helps with those. Kelly Dwyer manages the website. She can build you one too. And big thanks to lead editor and best dress butt, Jarrett Sleeper of MindGem Media. Nick Thorburn made the Ologies theme song. Who uh, He also made Serials. Isn't that nuts? He's in a band called Island. Great band. Anyway, if you listen to the end of the episode, I tell you a secret. And great news, I did not seem to have contracted COVID. It appears that my immune system and three shots put on a good fight and two rapid tests and a PCR later, I'm negative. So I'm all clear to go see my folks this week again. And thank you all for all the warm wishes and the good vibes. It's really appreciated. It just is. This is really nice of you. And thanks Innovation Nation for letting me take a leave of absence in order to be present where it matters most. And another fun fact, we put up an owl box in the yard today. So please tell the barn owls of LA to report to my yard so I can admire them. Okay. Give yourself a hug. Take it easy. Bye. Okay, I'm done. Look like you stepped on a fire urchin. Stepped on me? Stepped on me? Are you kidding? This guy was dancing on me. I mean, just look at this. Broken, broken, gone, gone, broken, broken, broken. This is, this is pretty bad. And just as a little bonus, if you wanted to stick around and hear my thoughts about electric vehicles and some knowledge exchanged, I had a discussion with a few guys from StarTalk about electric vehicles. Here we go. Hey, StarTalk fans. This next segment of our episode with Algae's host, Allie Ward, is sponsored by the all-electric Chevrolet Bolt EUV, the everyday electric vehicle for everyday people. That's you. The all-electric Chevy Bolt EUV has so many cool features, including the ability to engage in conversations hands-free with the industry's first hands-free driving assistance technology. You can find out more at chevrolet.com electric slash bolt EUV. All right, let's get back to the show. We're back, Star Talk Cosmic Queries. And for this segment, we're going to actually devote this to a discussion about electric cars. Yes. Chuck, what do you think of that? Yes, that's awesome. Because I know you don't like the word awesome, but in this case, I think it is awe-inspiring. But just to be clear, I, I love the word awesome, but when properly applied like when you discover a new universe or something. But okay. <laughs> when people say, it would be awesome if you could pass the salt, that is not a good use of the word awesome, okay? Okay, Just here is a good use of the word awesome because electric vehicles actually do so much to help the environment. And I care about the environment. I know you do. People don't think I do. But 
This segment we're doing in partnership with the Chevrolet Bolt EUV. So I'm just over the moon because we get to talk about electric vehicles, man. And that's our future. All right. So this EUV, is that like SUV except electric? Is that how we're going to Yeah, man. It? Yeah, exactly. Okay, Doesn't it sound better so, though? Doesn't it sound better to be like EUV, EUV you know? EUV. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. So yeah. Let's get back uh, to our, our guest here, Ali Ward from Ologies. Basically, did a, did a land grab on all ologies in the universe. Nice. <laughs> that's all a, of them. That's a straight power move. That's a, it's a that's total gangster right there. Yep, it's like, it. I, if it's Once an ology, you get that handle, you're sitting on it and it's yours. But yeah, this would be electric vehicle technology, I suppose. The, the segment. Oh, I, the ology. Right? Okay. There you, go. Right. The ology. You, to, you just cram that ology in whether or not it yep, belongs. That's what I do. <laughs> Someone mentioned something in casual conversation and I tell you what ology it is. But this one has really excited right. me. The, oh, yeah. I've been excited about um, electric vehicles since I was a kid. My, my dad is really into alternative sources of power and solar power. And so I have been watching for years and seeing how EVs come on the market. So I'm really excited about the Chevrolet Bolt EV. I think EV is a good oh, move okay. yeah, I well, like cool. the way it sounds. Cool. And Chuck, and, and but is it like 100 grand like other electric vehicles? Like what's going yeah, on there? That, that's the great thing about it's, it. Otherwise, I, it's not for everybody. You can't take that Chevy to the levee. If it costs that much, nobody's <laughs> no good old boys are doing that. So what's right? Yeah. Well, that's why they uh, drained the, the levy. That's why they drained the <laughs> levy was to pay for your very expensive, which this is not actually. When I said it's accessible, that's what I mean. It's uh, you know this is a a car that allows people to enter into this realm, and if you're a conscientious as, person, as a first foray, okay, very good, yeah. very good. Yeah. So, so Ali, do you have a question? I do actually. I wanted to know well wait wait actually that's not fair because you're our guest and we usually take questions from the audience from our fan base but but you know you seem so into it maybe we'll give you the occasion to ask the question with the permission of our fan base i think they'll allow it so the floor is mine i have the cosmic query conch right now and can launch a question (laughs) okay Uh so i wanted to talk about whether or not electric vehicles are good for the environment how much good do they do over a car that runs on fossil fuels? What are your thoughts on it? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I can, I mean, I don't claim to be the world's expert on that, but I can get you a lot of the way towards an answer to that question. So uh, here, here's the problem. Transportation today, you know, cars and trucks and things that, that, that move commerce, I guess even trains, but some trains are electric. So let's just stick to the ones that have, sort of engines that burn fossil fuels. Uh, the, the problem is, if you have a car that takes gasoline, it can only run on gasoline, right? So if so, if you run out of gas, you got to go to a gas station and fill it up with gasoline. So, you know, we all know how much gas costs, and we know where it comes from in the world, and we know if a pipeline gets shut down, and we know if a war breaks out, and if we know if, a, uh, if an oil well is on fire, and we know if, if there's new regulation related to it. So oil has become a strategic commodity simply because we need it to run our transportation grid. So now in comes an electric car. So an electric car, of course, it still uses power. All right. So so what's up with that? Why is it good rather than sort of neutral or bad or equal? Right. So here's what happens. You got your car and it's at home and you plug it in. Okay. Now. 
it's getting electricity from, your power plant. There's a chance your power plant is using coal. There's a good chance of that, all right? So that's not really much better, all right? Coal, burning coal and burn, burning gasoline, there's still this carbon footprint. Okay, however, the power plant is not limited to just coal. If they wanted to, and many have, they can put in, if they have sunlight where you are, a, a, a solar farm or a wind, a wind farm. And if you're near water, you could be hydroelectric. All of these sources of power can be generated by your power company and show up in your wall socket. So you don't need 12 different engines in your car to use 12 different kinds of energy. You just need a plug that gives you access to the thing that's generating the energy 12 different ways. So if you electrify the transportation grid, you are future-proofing our path in, into a, a, a culture and a civilization that can wean itself off its dependence of fossil fuels. And so that's why it works. That's why it's good. I like that answer. Not to mention, if you go solar on your house, you essentially have a solar-powered car, which is go. a car powered oh, by the oh, sun. yeah. There you go. Like, Exactly. There's got to be a bumper sticker for and that, so <laughs> like solar-powered. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, but that wouldn't work in places like Seattle where the sun never comes out or upstate New York. Um, but yeah, you, it, it would be believable if it's in a place where the sun is, is prevalent. So, yeah. so that's why uh, electric is good. Now, the problem is I can have a gallon of gas over here and I can move it over there where you need it, okay? You can't carry do with that you. with electric. You can't carry electricity with you. Oh, sorry, you can charge a battery, and then I can move the battery over there. No, the battery's in the car, okay? So, so one of the problems with electricity as it's generated is it can only, you can't sort of store it outside of the battery that's in your car. So to run your lights, to run most of the things that civilization uses electricity for, it doesn't come out of a storage battery. It's generated on the fly as you need it from the power station and delivered by the, the high tension lines. I was going to say, like, I'm glad you said that because there's a lot of people who are, you know, um, electric vehicle hesitant, I will say, because they're worried about how far they can drive, like because of what you just said. And the cool thing uh, about the industry, but more importantly about the Chevy Bolt EUV is the, because I know this because I got to take a tour of the car with GM. The cool thing is this car has nearly 250 mile range on a full charge. Okay. Right, that's good. Right. And then- that, That'll get you between any adjacent cities. Yeah. I mean, New York City is 250 between uh, Boston and Washington. Right. And, and you're in L.A., Allie? What, what cities with it? You, San Diego oh, is easy? Um, if you okay. need to make a getaway, that's Palm Springs, that's Joshua Tree, that's Santa Barbara, that's, yeah, up the coast. Oh, excuse me, Joshua Tree. Oh, excuse um, me. That means, okay. Yeah. These are uh, different hangouts. Excuse me, I'm about to take my Chevrolet Bolt EUV down to the Joshua Tree. I mean, I've got a hmm. Perhaps you'd like okay. to meet me there. Sometimes you need a new <laughs> shoot, you need to get in your Bolt. I love the EUVs. Yeah. I think if you like a hatchback mm -hmm. with a little bit higher profile, um, I, yeah, I love that. And the range is mm -hmm. great. They call it range anxiety. People who are afraid to go EV because they think they're going to be stranded. But once you drive an electric, 
it's kind of like once you become a bird watcher, you start seeing all these charging stations, just like you would see birds you didn't realize were there before. But once you drive an EV, right. it's like, oh, there's a charge. They're uh, everywhere. You can charge in parking lots yeah. at the mall. You can charge next to your grocery store. You can charge at hotels. It's just like, it's really easy. Wait, so the bird watcher and analog there is, if you've never looked for a bird, you would never know it was there until you knew what to yeah. look for. Yeah. Right. And then they're yeah. everywhere. I got you. Yeah. Okay. So that's just yeah. like a psychological sort effect. Of, once you yeah. know what to look for. But yeah, there's EV charging stations everywhere. Um, yeah, there's about mm -hmm. 40,000 uh, birds to look for across <laughs> when you're <Okay>. traveling. <laughs> is that how many, is that how many uh, EV stations are there? Really? Yeah. Yeah. There's about 40,000 public charging stations. So that's great. You know, you can. Okay. So, so Chuck, which, which goes faster down the road? A, a Chevy Bolt or Usain Bolt? You know, uh, I'm going to say that the Usain Bolt is faster out of the blocks, but the Chevy Bolt is going to ultimately <laughs> smoke him. <laughs> don't tell him that. Exactly. You don't need as many carbs for your Chevy Bolt. You can. You don't have to run yeah. it on pasta, protein, anything. I think range, better range. Oh, I got gotcha. you. There you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So is that the, that's your only question you had? That was my main uh, question about it. I think, um, you know, people who are considering going from a fossil fuel car to something that is electric, I think tend to be people who are environmentally conscious. And so they really want to know how much better is this for the environment. But knowing that you can use... I, I agree. And those are the people who do it first. Yeah. But ultimately, if you get the right price point, people just yeah. do it because it's the right yeah. price point. Not to mention... Right. Oh, wait. So then, uh, you know, speaking of what you just said... Before we actually got on the show today, Ali was doing something oh, yeah. on your computer where you were like looking at the savings. So when you talk about price point, there are hidden savings in every electric vehicle. Uh, but I don't know. Yeah. Do you have what, what were you doing? Well, there are fewer moving parts. Oh, can I can I back up real quick? We're running out of time. I don't want to take up the whole thing. But okay. But uh, Michael Faraday, go back a hundred and. 50, 60 years. When you said back, uh, I thought you meant back in the show. <laughs> no, no, no. Like, can I go, go back? back? Michael Faraday. <laughs> so Michael Faraday, uh, an English scientist, physicist, uh, he basically is responsible for figuring out how to generate electricity. Right. Okay? And he, he invented the concept of an electric field, by the way, because that's not a thing you can touch, right? It's just this thing there. So he can draw it and calculate, you can calculate with it. So... He, he realized that if you move a wire through a magnetic field, it induces current in that wire, and you can, it'll show up on a meter. And so, whoa, well, that's kind of, it was a little novel at the time, but what would you do with this? This is kind of a stupid toy. And then people figure, oh my gosh, this is the birth of the electrification of the world. Point is, the way we do that now is we have a tightly wound, uh, in a, what's called a turbine, a tightly wound wire coil that spins in a magnetic field and an electric um, uh, a current is induced in that wire. Ever since the beginning of electricity, we've known how to spin things. That's, that's what we do best. We've been doing it for 150 years. And what is a car, if not electricity, spinning things? So the acceleration on an electric vehicle can be excellent because of this fact. And that's why the Chevy Bolt, I, I didn't check the acceleration numbers. They might actually accelerate out of the box faster than Usain Bolt, now that, now that I'm thinking about it. Mm. So. Well, also, uh, I was checking on price point stuff just to see how much would I save per year 
driving an EV. And my parents live about 400 miles away. So I go up a, a couple times, obviously, like every month or two. And I would save $10,000 over five years on gas, just based on oh, that. Okay. Which is, um, yeah, if I'll you're calculating that. how much. Not to mention how much CO2 that is. Right. So right. a little right. karmically right. and then mm-hmm. pocketbook wise. But yeah, I, I did. They have a number cruncher for you. So you don't have to, uh, you don't have uh-huh. to pull out your spreadsheets. They have it for you. But yeah. And yeah, the acceleration is better. I see what you did when you say karma. Karma. Yeah, you like that? Yeah, I see what yeah. you did. Yeah, electric. Karma. The puns are electric. <laughs> so, guys, we got to land this plane or park this car. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ali, has been delight to have you on this show. I can't believe we haven't had you ever on before. We got to do this again with your permission. Yes. And talk about some of the ologies that you you discovered, or I think you're inventing some of those ologies. Maybe, really, maybe bending really. some words. I think you. I think I think you're pulling them out of I don't I know swear, where. Okay. I swear, I do look for I do look for them in the literature first. I promise. But yes, so all many right. ologies to cover. Right. I'm here whenever you need me. And so little time. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Thanks for being Thank on you. Star Talk. And you, you can catch her on our ology mm-hmm. podcast. And. Um, it goes everywhere. I mean, every ology you can ever imagine, it, even the ones you haven't imagined because she made them up. <laughs> They're there. <laughs> right. Loosely. All right, Chuck, always good to have you, man. Hey, Neil, before we wrap up, I just want to let the viewer know that if you're ready to make the electric future part of your present and do some good for the environment, which is what it is all about, check out the Chevrolet Bolt EUV at chevrolet.com slash electric. Chevrolet.com slash electric. Do some good, people. Come on. All right, this has been Star Talk Cosmic Queries. Neil deGrasse Tyson here. As always, keep looking up. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois.